0: Good morning. It's really good to be here. Thank you for the invitation to come and speak. It's a privilege uh, to do so. Before we start, let me just pray. As Father, as I um, come and speak this morning, I just echo what Matthew just said. I just pray that we would be blessed. I pray that you'd be with me. Help me to speak your truth and help these words to affect our hearts and our lives and let us be changed let your spirit work in our lives to make us more like Christ. Amen. So we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, uh, turn to that again so you're able to follow along. It's going to be very helpful. Uh, and I've titled this Preaching Christ Crucified. We're going to see three points. The gospel preached, the gospel rejected, and the gospel revealed. Before we jump into chapter 2, let me just set the scene a little bit of the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. And he's addressing a church that he knows very well. You read in the book of Acts in chapter 18 about how Paul went and spent a year and a half in Corinth and he preached the gospel there to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. And in the letter, if you're at all familiar with it, you'll know that a lot of what Paul does in his writing is address errors and issues that have arisen in the Corinthian church, and he calls them out and rebukes sin that's entered the church there. He's heard reports of all sorts of things that are going on in the church, and he goes through and systematically addresses each issue and corrects their wrong thinking and points them in the right direction to what they should be thinking these first few chapters of 1 Corinthians give us some great doctrine about the the church, uh, ministry and the gospel and it's all done within this context of correction of where they've gone astray. So he starts the letter in chapter one and he he gives them a greeting, he thanks God for them and he gets straight into addressing the first issue uh, that's come up in the church and it's one of division, tribalism, split maybe in the church. It seems that they began to rally together under certain individuals, certain leaders and preachers uh, and maybe elevate them and exalt them to a position that they shouldn't be. If we just look at chapter 1 and <laughs> verse 10, we read, I appeal to you brothers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree with one another so that there be, may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought." My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. So the believers have, have heard from many different preachers. Um, and have seemed to completely miss the point of gospel unity and have begun to separate themselves into, I follow Paul, I follow Peter, rather than finding their unity in Christ. So Paul calls them out for that, he says that's wrong, Um, you ought to be of one mind, united. Um, And he goes on to explain the centrality of the message of the gospel, and also the way in which we come to understand the message. So we're going to look at that today in chapter 2, that's where we're at, we're kind of jumping into the middle of Paul's argument. Uh, but we'll jump in on our first section is the gospel preached in verse one to five. So chapter two, verse one, when I came to you brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So we we know from the context that some people have chosen to elevate Paul and say, I belong to Paul. Maybe some have rejected Paul and say, I don't really like him. I prefer Peter. I prefer Apollos. But either way, Paul addresses both of them crowds and all the Christians in Corinth by saying, look, remember, think back to when I was with you. What did I do? I I didn't come with some fancy intellectual discourse that... Was really impressive and blew everyone away. No, what did I do? I preached Christ and Him crucified. The person and the work of Christ, what we would call the gospel. This was Paul's message, uh, as a message of who Jesus is and what He's done. And Paul makes the point to them that He brought them the testimony of God, not some worldly message filled with worldly wisdom. There was no Dressing up, no exaggerating for effect, no look at me about it. There's no need for that. He knew that the success of what he said depended on the content of his message rather than his performance. Maybe some of us today have tried to share the gospel with people we know, tried to share our faith with unbelievers, and we felt inadequate to do that. We felt like we're not qualified, we're not well-equipped enough and from these verses, there's a real encouragement. All we need is the gospel. All we need is Christ, the message about him, not eloquent words, not wise words for this world, just Jesus. Paul goes on, I came to you in, in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Not only was his message ordinary and unimpressive, he wasn't anything impressive either. Paul's saying, look, I was weak, fearful, trembling, probably in such a way that would have been obvious to people who were looking at him. Um, and yeah, you know, I think what often we can look back I know I do, I look back at some of the heroes of Scripture, maybe the Apostle Paul is one of them. We think that he's some sort of impressive superman who just had it all figured out we wrongly attribute the power um, and the status to them instead of realizing they are just weak, ordinary humans just like us who have given themselves to a strong and powerful God who is using them in their weakness. That's something we need to do as well. Paul's point here isn't just to be humble or just to put himself down for for no reason. He, He genuinely believes what he's saying and I assume that he, he knows that the Corinthians will believe the same too. He's saying, look, think back. You know this is true about me. What he's really doing is, is showing them where to direct their attention. Don't look at me. Look at where the real power is. And that powerful effect that Paul Paul's preaching had came not from him, but from the demonstration of the Spirit's power, verse 4. And that's really important. Paul wants to stress that. Why? Verse 5, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So that these believers wouldn't think the power lies with Paul, but they'd realize it lies with God. It wasn't because he won all the arguments and all the objections. No, he presented the gospel and then the spirit worked. The spirit moved with power. Um, and the result is that the fruit of the preaching of the gospel is not from the power of the preacher, but from the power of the Spirit. And so immediately, how wrong it does seem for these Corinthians or anyone to exalt a preacher or a person above the message of God? In the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul uses this image of jars of clay as says, we have this treasure in jars of clay when talking about the gospel that we have. How strange it would be to look at the vessel, these ordinary jars of clay, rather than the treasure that's inside them, rather than the powerful God that's behind the message. <coughs> Just think about this. We, we, do want, we don't want to get the wrong end of the stick. I don't think Paul is saying we shouldn't honor good preaching or honor faithful preachers. Elsewhere in the Bible, he instructs us to do just that, to honor men like that, but there is a clear warning here about being carried away into a cult of personality or a warning against attributing the power of the gospel to men, which would rob the spirit of glory. And also, I don't think Paul's against eloquence or intellect necessarily. also there's a a warning there to to avoid maybe someone who who seems really impressive or eloquent but the message is not centered around Christ and him crucified. The content of Paul's message was what was important. The the content of our message should be what's important not necessarily uh, the, the impressiveness of the delivery. Paul preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. The gospel preached. Secondly, we'll see the gospel rejected in verses 6 to 9. Verse 6, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So Paul moves on to talk about the nature of this message, and we see a few things in these verses about it. Firstly, that it's, it's not wisdom of this age or of this world. And because it's not, it's rejected by this world, is rejected by those who are of this world. But it is received by some, so it says, the mature receiver. And I think it's natural to take this to mean true believers, Christians, those who hear and accept the wisdom of God as it's revealed in the gospel. The gospel is rejected by this world, but accepted by believers. And also verse 7, the wisdom is secret and has been hidden. And so we know that the, the unfolding of God's salvation plan throughout all of history, throughout all of scripture, occurred over a long time. There was promises made, covenants, foreshadowing types and figures under the old covenant. And it wasn't clear to those people living under the old covenant what it would look like when God completed his purposes and his salvation plan until finally, at the appointed time, Jesus came and fulfilled all those promises of God. The mystery was revealed. And yet, in spite of that, in spite of the fact that there had been this build-up, these promises, these prophecies, and then Jesus comes on the scene and fulfills them, the very people to whom those promises were made rejected the Messiah. They rejected Jesus. Verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The rulers of the day, when Paul was writing, saw Jesus, they heard his message and they killed him. Remember those who conspired against Jesus and handed him over to the Romans to be killed were the very people who should have known Christ when he came. They they were in the best position to understand these secrets, these mysteries of God, these promises, and yet they rejected it. And nothing's changed throughout history. The the rulers of Jesus' day rejected him, and rulers today still reject Jesus. And everyone does, and as it says in this, this text, it's because this wisdom is not of this age. And so therefore, those who are of this age will Look at Jesus, look at his message, and reject it. We see a bit more in verse 9. We see that this isn't just a problem for those who rejected it when he came, but for all humanity, really. Um, Look at verse 9. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. These words are from Isaiah chapter 64 and the they illustrate a point here of the gospel's transcendence of, of God's wisdom being beyond the realms of man's senses or intellect. No eye has seen, no ear has heard it. It's beyond our imagination even, what God has planned, what he has in store, what this secret wisdom is. Mm-hmm. But even despite that, it's been hidden and destined for our glory. Verse 7, before time began. What an amazing thing to know. If I want to go to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, 10 there if you want. Verse 10, we just see a good example of this, I think. Verse 10 of 1 Peter, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care The sense in which these prophets, these Old Testament prophets, this is your Isaiah, your Micahs, and Daniel's, even who told us these great truths and promises about the Messiah, searched into it and were, were thinking about that grace yet to come and wondering what it would look like, thinking about the times and and, and the revelation that would, would be at the time of Christ. And how amazing that we live in after Christ and these Corinthian believers, as well, here in Paul's message, got to see the full picture, got to see the fulfillment of all the promises, got to see the secret wisdom now revealed, yet beyond our comprehension. Yeah, the rulers of Jesus' day rejected it. They killed Christ. Rulers of our day rejected it. People in this world reject it. But I think we also need to see that without the help, of the Spirit, every single one of us here would also reject this gospel. These are things far too great for the human mind, especially the mind that's fixed on this world. And if we are focused and fixed on this world we will be conformed to this world and we will reject the glory of the gospel. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18 Paul says, for the message of the cross Is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And later on in verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. People of this world, the wisdom of this age, looks at the cross and sees foolishness, sees weakness, sees defeat, a failure. But the mature, the wise, see victory and an answer and a revelation to those questions about which the prophets inquired and searched. You know, under the Old Covenant, they, they had a holy God. You know, We, we know this from the Old Testament. And this God is unchanging, so this is true for us today. But if we put ourselves in their shoes, holy God, merciful, gracious, loving, kind, but also just and righteous, who won't leave the guilty unpunished. And a, a band of helpless sinners, rebels, you are constantly failing and rejecting God's word. And the, the tension there, the question under the old covenant behind every uh, promise and, and command and sacrifice and, and rule and regulation in the law, in the prophets, led to the question, how can God, a holy God, dwell with sinful men? And the answer comes, as we know, in Jesus. As he condescends, he he becomes born as a man, emptying himself, taking on the form of a servant, Philippians tells us, humbling himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. And in doing so, bears the wrath of God reserved for sinners who've rejected God's word. He bears our iniquities, he stands in our place so that we could be accounted righteous jesus the son of god dying the death that we deserved raised to life so that we can receive the reward that only he deserves eternal life with the father <clears throat> that's what paul preached that was his message of christ and him crucified a central simple message to the corinthians and it's our message today isn't it what we preach Is our saviour, Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, the risen saviour. No wonder Peter says things into which even angels long to look. This wisdom of God is not the world's wisdom. It is rejected by the world. What does it mean to be truly wise, to to have not the wisdom of the world, but God's wisdom? It's, It's to see yourself rightly in light of a holy God humble yourself to the the point of recognition there's nothing that I can do to be saved there's nothing I can do to earn my salvation but I must repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross to save from sin that's when gospel rejecters become gospel believers gospel preached the gospel rejected and lastly we'll see the gospel Revealed, Because the question still remains, how are we to understand these things? How are we to comprehend these things? And the answer comes verse 10. These things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The power that Paul talked about in his message, I mean, that demonstration of the spirit from verse 4, was not obviously his power, it was God's power. God's spirit enabling men and women With earthly minds, earthly wisdom, who can't understand the things of God to comprehend this truth, to comprehend the news about Christ. And in doing that, gives them new life. In these last few verses, I want to see three things about the Spirit and split it into a statement, really. The Spirit is God, firstly. And then we have the Spirit. And therefore, we can understand the things of God. Firstly, the Spirit is God. So verse 10, God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We get an example here and a comparison which helps us to understand what's happening. And the idea is who, who knows someone's thoughts that that person does. I don't know if you've ever been in a, in a conversation with someone or just knowing someone and you just really want to know what's in their head, what's going on. It would really help you out. But you can't because you're not that person. You don't have their thoughts. They don't know what your thoughts are because they're not you. That's the idea, Paul says. You know, I know my thoughts because I'm me and my thoughts are my thoughts. And so taking that in the same way, he says, And because of the working of the Trinity, we get this picture that even though the Spirit is a distinct person from the Father, in the same way the Son is distinct, they are one. They are God in the Trinity. And so, of course, the Spirit knows the thoughts of God, because he is God. The Spirit is God. And so the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. We have the Spirit. Number two, verse 12, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. So this spirit that is God, we have. Who's the we? Believers, all Christians have the spirit. Plenty of places that we can go to in Scripture to to see that, to see that this is a gift for all believers, but we don't really need to. We just need to remember who Paul's writing to verse 2 of the the book, to the Church of God in Corinth. This is written to true believers in Corinth, and this is true for all believers throughout history. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of God, who is from God. So the Spirit is God, we have the Spirit, and therefore we can understand the things of God. middle of verse 12, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing, express, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Because they are spiritually discerned. the same. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Again, believers have the mind of Christ. They perceive the spirits of God so that they can understand spiritual things. Things that are foolishness to the world, but things that for those who are indwelt by the Spirit uh, are, are able to be discerned. The Spirit is God, we have the Spirit, therefore we can understand the things of God. We see, I just want to show you a practical example of this from the Gospels, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13, when Jesus came the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ the Son of the living God." Jesus replied, "'Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven.'" When Peter comes to understand who Jesus really is, a supernatural event has occurred. There's been a a gift. The Father has opened the eyes of an unbeliever and through the Spirit given him the understanding of who Jesus is. And that's not just true for Peter, it's true for every single believer, everyone who comes to the knowledge of who Jesus is. Their eyes have been opened and enlightened to the truth about God in the gospel. And when we truly understand this, we'll praise God, of course we will, and it will lead to humility. It will lead to us understanding our place within the gospel story. We didn't bring anything to our salvation, but that we have received everything as a gift. We won't be able to track through Paul's whole argument to the end of this section, but just flip to um, 4 verse 7. It kind of comes back to this idea. It says, For who makes you different than anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? Maybe you did not receive it. Why do you boast as though you did not? Everything we have, even our understanding of the gospel, even our understanding of God, is a gift to be received with humility and thanks. And therefore, this completely smashes against the the error of the Corinthians to look to man and exalt people and become divided into tribes. The gospel, every single one of us has received equally as a gift from God. None of us is worthy of it. None of us is deserving of it. It is of grace, and therefore it will lead to true humility and make worshipping anything else look foolish in comparison. The gospel is revealed by the Spirit, the spiritual believers. So the gospel is preached, number one. The gospel is rejected by the world, the gospel is revealed by the Spirit to believers. Let's just draw this all together and and conclude with a few points here. The passage, I hope we see that Paul is trying to address this error to the Corinthians, but there's so much for us to see from this and apply to our own lives. I think it should give us great encouragement um, in a few areas, but especially our evangelism sharing the gospel with others. Paul's talking about his own ministry, of course, yeah, as an apostle, but this is true not just for him, not just for apostles, and not just for preachers. It's true for every single believer. as We're all called to be part of the Great Commission, aren't we? We have this treasure, this message, this gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we don't need to worry about our eloquence, how intelligent we are, impressive we seem to the world. In fact, we know full well that it will seem foolish. That the message will be foolishness. And that would lead us to prayer. To know we need the Spirit. We need God's help in this. We need Him to apply truths so that men and women who are lost in darkness can hear. So this week, that family member, that person that you know, pray for them. Tell them the gospel and pray for them. Pray that the Spirit would open their eyes to the truth. And also I think we need to take seriously the warnings here that just like the Corinthians, if our identity as believers, as a church, is in anything other than Christ, And unless we're united in one mind, we need to take a serious look at ourselves. It could be that we're the same as Corinthians, that we're identifying with a preacher or a leader, or maybe a denomination, maybe a tradition, a way of doing things, anything really that we choose to elevate above Christ. It's serious, serious sin. And we need to come to that humble knowledge and understanding that God has given us this amazing grace through the gospel as a gift. And lastly, if, if you are rejecting the gospel, if your eye still hasn't seen, your ear still has not heard, and you've never come to believe in the message of Christ, then there's no excuse for you here. There's no excuse. You can't rest in the fact that the world just rejects the gospel. That's what people do. And that you're in a majority. No. You are called to hear what Jesus has done for you and decide. And that the choice is clear. Either stay blinded in the wisdom of this world or call out to Him. Believe in God, believe in the Holy Spirit, and He will shine the light of the gospel in your heart and reveal Christ to you. Maybe you need to do that for the first time today. Maybe you've done that but your heart has grown cold and you need the Spirit to to light up what you already know. Maybe you need the encouragement to, to take these truths and make them more than just personal to Use them to bless those in your church. People that you know, people you know that are struggling. Or people you know in your community, in your circles that don't know Christ. Whatever it is, the truth is clear for all of us that we need the Spirit. We need God to help us to reveal His truth for us. And I would urge you to do it today. Call out to the Spirit, trust in him, trust in the message of the gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified.